0: Welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian living. Bridging Theology is hosted by Drs. Beth Stovell, Candace Smith, Claudia Herrera Montero, Brian Reed, and me, Kevin Hill. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Lewis Brogdon. Lewis is the director of the Institute for Black Church Studies and research professor of preaching and Black Church Studies at the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. He's also the author of multiple books, including A Companion to Philemon, from Cascade in 2018. Our hosts today are Dr. Candace Smith, who specializes in practical theology, and Dr. Beth Stovell, who specializes in biblical studies. And now, on with the conversation.
1: listening. I'm Candace Smith. And I'm Beth Stavell. Today, we're very
2: pleased to have with us Lewis Brogdon. Lewis, welcome to the Bridging Theology podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: I'm glad to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation.
2: So we're going to start with some icebreaker questions just to kind of get us loose and talking. Um, so can you tell us something interesting about yourself that most people wouldn't know?
3: Well, I think they should know that I had a very um, very hard childhood because uh, God decided to give me six sisters uh, and no brothers so I'm, and I'm right in the middle so I have three older sisters three younger sisters so it's technically like having four moms when you have uh, three older sisters uh, so and and I got in trouble a lot uh, because they were always telling on me uh, but 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 seriously I think having that many sisters you know, it's really helped me to become the person that I am. And uh, it's always a funny uh, thing to, to think about. And I often ask God, uh, why? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't get one brother, not like one. <laughs> then my first two kids were daughters. I was like, what is going on?
2: <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And we're both, the, both of the people interviewing today are women. Yes. So, you know, you, you got it all around. <laughs> <laughs> So I also know, um, I, you know, did a little internet research on you. Um, I know you received an invitation to the White House back in 2014. What was that like for you?
3: Uh, it, was, it was one of the highlights of my career. For about a three-year period, uh, when I was directing the uh, the Black Church Studies program at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary, uh, one of the partnerships we had was with the uh, National Newspaper Publisher Association. Uh, it's called NNPA. And it's basically a conglomerate of all the uh, black owned newspaper um, agencies across the country. And so they always have a black press week. And a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Reverend Walter Thompson, who was pastoring up in the uh, Jamaica, Queens area, was working with the the chair of NNPA. And so we would always uh, go uh, to black press week. And, you know, I was at the press club doing some things. We started this initiative called the Black Pulpit in the Public the black pulpit in the press Mm. uh, where we were really trying to help uh, leaders in black churches to, uh, you know, to be more responsible in their political engagement uh, Mm. and to really uh, do some important uh, work in our communities and, and, and exploring partnerships with these Uh, you know, various press agencies that can, you know, kind of help us get the message out. So I get this phone Mm -hmm. call from Walter and he was like, how would you like to go to the White House? You know, and I was like, are are you serious? And he he was like, yes. And he kind of told me the steps we needed to take. Uh, Then President Obama, uh, when he launched his My Brother's Keeper initiative, where he was focusing on uh, work with uh, black and brown boys. Now, when he launched the initiative, he had, of course, all the A-list black leaders, uh, you know, the (laughs) Magic Johnson's and the Oprah Winfrey's and all these folks, they were there when, when it was announced, but there were, uh, you know, several other meetings that were being staffed by Valerie Jarrett. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. one thing about the, uh, about the black community is a lot of times, uh, you know, you, you'll have this, you know, powerful, influential male leader. Uh, but the person who really makes everything go is, is is often, uh, black women.
4: Mm. And,
3: And so I did not get to meet Barack Obama. Uh, and I'm fine with that because I was still in the White House. Uh, but I got to sit down and Valerie briefed us on everything. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we were exploring ways to uh, to do some of that work. There was a tremendous amount of funding. And so it was pretty it it was it was pretty cool. And I always qualify when I tell people that I visited the White House that I do say it's under Obama. Okay, just so they know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Great, great. That's amazing, Lewis. Thank you for just introducing a little bit about yourself. We're going to just move on to some questions, um, just a, a little bit about you and your research. Okay. So our podcast is about bridging the scholars across disciplines, but also about connecting the church and the academy. Um, and I know you are both a researcher and an ordained minister. I know you spent some time serving as a senior pastor as well. So we just wanted you to just share a little bit about your journey and how you arrived at your research interest in your vocational call.
3: Well, you know, I think my call, it evolved and opened in surprising ways. Uh, so when I got when I graduated from high school you know, I was on my way to a career in politics. So I thought I was going to be the first black president. So I was actually going to beat Barack hmm. Obama. That was my plan. Uh, hmm. So I was a double major political science in Spanish. Uh, and you know, was heavy, heavy, heavy into politics was going to go into, uh, into government, uh, and then just sort of work my way up. Uh, but my freshman year of college, uh, you know, I kind of had a Damascus road experience. I got, I got away from my parents and kind of cut loose, uh, and, you know, lost touch with who I was and, and just, just really encountered God in a powerful way. And, and so ended up, uh you know, being called to the ministry. I tried to run from that uh, because, you know, I, I did have other plans, uh, but it's hard to run from uh, God's call. Uh, I said yes to that and uh, went into ministry. I was uh, in a Pentecostal denomination uh, at that time. And so, of course, it doesn't require theological training and, uh, and, and, and just being uh, gifted. I just stood out and I think within probably three years, um, I was pastoring a, uh, a church and I'm actually writing on this. So I'm, uh, it's, it's pretty cool that you've asked this question because I'm really writing an essay that's that's really biographical in nature as I'm reflecting upon my journey. I was always a nerd. I was always just buying books, reading and and like a lot of Pentecostal pastors used to kind of be like, what are you doing? You know, you kind of get it from the spirit. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I like getting it from the spirit and also from books. Uh, and I was just constantly buying books, buying books, and reading and reading, and sometimes going in a little too much depth in Bible studies and sermons. And uh, so, you know, I think there were giftings that people started to recognize and say, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, becoming a professor? And you know, and it just made a lot of sense. And one night I was sitting in a, I, so I just looked up some Bible college in my in my hometown and found it. Didn't know anything about it. Uh, just went over there and said, can I start taking classes? You know, I'll, I'll, and I'm not in this denomination and it's all white. And they was like shocked. Like, what is this black guy doing? He <laughs> wanted to take classes. And so they let me. And uh, one Monday night I was sitting in a, a Ephesians, Colossians, uh, exegetical course. And the professor got up and wrote Greek on the board. And I mean, <laughs> I heard the angels like singing, you know, <laughs> I, like, I want to do that. You know, I want to do mm-hmm. that. Uh, and so, you know, I just went gung-ho 10 straight years. I finished my my bachelor's. I did my MDiv in two and a half years and then did my PhD in five years and and just, just really took off from there. But once I got my PhD, I really didn't want to just s- sort of be in the academy. I wanted one foot in the academy and one in the church slash uh, the black community. Mm-hmm. And that's been very, very important to me to do some of that both and work. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about in the podcast why I think that's important. Uh, but my call has really come full circle. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've started my second Black Church Studies program. And the difference between the first one and this one is really this This institute is mine. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. this, this
3: is my national uh, institute, uh, my national platform to do all the work that I think God has been putting these seeds and sort of really... Maturing me and bringing me to this moment where I now have an opportunity to not only do work uh, in the classroom, uh, but really uh, work in the public square. Something that I think needed now more than ever. And so my call has really evolved. I have uh, I have let go of wanting to be a pastor. That took me after my PhD. Mm -hmm. I finished my PhD in 2010 and wanted to keep pastoring, but uh, the Black Church a lot. Some black churches don't want a, a black pastor with a PhD. And so mm-hmm. I kept getting turned down uh, and was like struggling. I was like, God, like I did this so I could serve the church. What's going on? But uh, it was once I realized it wasn't their no, it was really God's no, because God really mm-hmm. had something else for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I fully embraced that. I have no desire. No, no, no. To, uh, to go back to uh, pastoring a church. <laughs> Uh, that really the work that I'm doing uh, really across the, the the country, and now there are even opportunities all over the world that are opening up mm. to me. i I fully embrace that.
4: Mm.
2: Wow, that's amazing! And I'm looking forward to the essay that's going to come out of this. That's mm. that's you have such an amazing story. Thank you, wanna, you so much for sharing it. <laughs> you want to hear the, the
3: title is going to be um, "Losing and Deepening Your Faith." Oh. So, wow. I'll, be, I'll be talking about how you can, you know, losing faith, a lot of times people think that's something that's bad,
4: mm-hmm. but
3: actually, that's a part of deepening your faith. You got to mm-hmm. lose some things if you really want to deepen it. So, mm-hmm. it's going to be good. Such a,
2: that's such a good word. I love that. Um, you know, that makes me think about, you know, in your story, you can hear all these different specialties that you have, you know, like church studies, the New Testament, homiletics, um, and I would love to hear from you what you think the purpose of Christian scholarship is in light of kind of those different experiences.
3: Well, let me give you the let me give you the PAD answer. The PAD answer is, of course, you know, education as preparation for service. We're, we're always preparing our students so they can go out into the world uh, and serve and 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 do things. Yes, okay, but but really, the purpose of Christian scholarship there are three things I want to lift up. The first is, is, the, is teaching. And I think it's our job as scholars is to teach in a way that we help people mine the depths of the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. So a, a part of our, mm-hmm. our sort of current moral, spiritual, and political crisis is because we have so many uh, shallow expressions of, of Christian faith that have just become uh, normative people think that all there is to being a christian is being a member of a church i mean very very simplistic and reductionistic but they really think that and and it's in some of the indictment of what's going on in this country is really on the academy that i don't think we've done our job on the ground and in local communities not in classrooms. Yes, we've mm-hmm. got tenure and big titles and we've written books, but I'm talking about in local communities mm-hmm. of helping people to mine the, the depths of the Christian tradition. I mean, it, there, mm-hmm. there's some real depth. And when you study mm-hmm. people who have mined those depths, they have impacted their world uh, in incredible ways.
4: Mm-hmm. And so
3: I think that that's a part of what I try to do in my writing, Uh, taking a less is more approach to books because people just aren't going to, you know, pour through those two, three, 400 page books as much as nerds like us can, we can pump them out. (laughs) But to, to focus on something that's very, very specific uh, and to, and to kind of just drill down on that, on that one thing um, so that they can begin to understand it. Like, for example, I wrote a commentary on Paul's letter to Philemon that offered a reinterpretation of a letter that really the church ignores. The church just ignores Mm -hmm. this letter. So it lies in what I call canonical obscurity. And to me, it's because it just has such a problematic backstory that we could trace all the way back to John Chrysostom. Um, But a different backstory coming from the perspective of the enslaved can open that text up in incredible ways. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I tried to do. And I've offered a reading of Philemon that now when people engage it, they're like, oh my gosh, this this letter actually challenges me. This challenges us because uh, the technical title to my dissertation was Exclusion as Impediment to Conversion, an African-American reading of Paul's letter to Philemon. Uh, because my big question was, why wasn't Onesimus a Christian in this pastor's house? Why did mm-hmm. he leave and encounters Christ in a prison? And to me, it's because of what he was seeing, the duplicity Of this Christian master and pastor who could show hospitality to social peers, but then doesn't see a disconnect in treating enslaved persons in a different manner.
4: Mm
3: -hmm. Same kind of duplicity in Corinth with the poor. Same kind of duplicity with uh, Barnabas and the Jews who would treat Gentiles differently. Uh, It's a very, very kind of a Christian thing we have to work on because sometimes when we misrepresent the gospel, we turn people away. And so that's just one Mm -hmm. example of just digging a little deeper and and mining those depths, I think are very important. Um, I like, of course, I think it's up to us to provide intellectual leadership, which means deepening people's understanding, sometimes broadening their thinking, um, asking hard questions. I mean, that, that is, that is our job. And that's one of the reasons why I don't want to pastor anymore. And, and I, and I wouldn't because there, there are just some questions you cannot ask uh, in some congregational settings that you, you know, you just can't disrupt too much. And so I get an opportunity to, and I work with 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 pastors in, in denominations all the time as, as well as congregations. And so because I am, I'm a scholar, I'm I'm a thinker, I'm an intellectual, I can raise questions that their local pastor can't necessarily raise. And Mm -hmm. and that's a responsibility. There's a certain way you do that, you know? And and I I think people can be reckless with the way they frame and ask questions. And And I don't know, God has just worked in my life in a way where I can be in congregational settings and I can ask very, very hard questions but I'm asking them in a way that they can actually hear uh, and, mm. and, and grapple with versus just trying to wow them and to deconstruct everything that they believe, you know, just because I'm smart enough to do that. I, I don't think mm-hmm. that's really good intellectual leadership. Uh, but we do need to deepen and to broaden our thinking uh, about issues. And so that, that's, that's it's so important. And then the third area is then what I call moral leadership. Which is, we have to get out of the academy and into the public square. That I know we want tenure, we want to uh, write books and peer-reviewed journals, and, and, and that's all important. But <laughs> we're in a we are in a moment of crisis in this country, uh, and it has been this way for the past few years. And it really just blows my mind how m- many in the Academy have just abdicated their responsibility uh, to to the public square. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, I stopped focusing on writing academic books and started writing um, op-eds, articles, doing a lot of sort of on-the-ground grassroots kind of things because it's like, how can I take these incredibly important, nuanced, sophisticated ideas that we talk about in the Academy? How can I take a piece of that and and bring that into the public square and into local congregations Mm -hmm. and people in in their community so that we can, uh, you know, deepen and broaden our thinking and and work towards uh, a a better world? And so I have my own uh, column in Black Politics Today magazine uh, called The Black Pulpit in the Public Square, where I write on political and social issues.
4: Mm -hmm. I have...
3: uh, Written two op-eds that have been uh, published in the Courier Journal, uh, one at the beginning of the summer and one at the end. The one at the beginning of the summer was uh, was talking about uh, is America is America in danger of losing its soul? Mm -hmm. And then the last one I talked about that we're not ready for the next crisis and lessons that the the COVID pandemic can really teach us. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important we have to get out in the public square uh, and. And be one of those voices uh, and to Mm -hmm. not abdicate the public square uh, to people who don't bring the kind of nuance and and, and critical thinking uh, that, that we bring to the table. And so that's my answer.
2: That's so great. You know, something I appreciate about that is it sounds like God's used that interest in politics and political thinking that you start where you started and has has made it come full circle. Yes. That that is part of how you live out um, what it means to be a Christian scholar um, in that in that moral leadership public sphere way, which just, is just wonderful. So that's so good to hear. And it reminds me of something one of my professors said to me, um, you know, God doesn't waste anything. Um, he uses all the different parts of who we are. And I can hear that in your story so yes. much.
3: Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool because there was a there was a guy running for governor in the state of West Virginia. And, uh, you know, I ended up being, you know, uh, you know, an, an advisor for, for his campaign, you know, and, and just being a liaison for people uh, in the p- political sphere as someone who's a religious leader. It's, yeah, it's just God just weaving all that together. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's amazing.
1: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful journey. Um, so I know you alluded a little bit to some of your work of being connected to, like connecting your scholarship, not just within the ac- in academia, but also within the public square. And I know that you've done a little bit of work on mental health, um, especially mental health crises in the church, since that's one of the taboo topics that we don't really talk about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um there's been such a silence around that. Um, and I know that we're in the height of a global pandemic. What, from your research, do you feel the um, insights you could bring to our conversation for the audience for even just navigating these times?
3: Well, I mean, first, I think it's important for, uh, for people to understand that the pandemic exacerbated already troubling health outcomes when you talk about health outcomes for the black community. Um, African Americans have highest rates of uh, hypertension, uh, depression, obesity. Now in the early seventies, African Americans were some, some of the least likely to commit suicide. Uh, And then, and so today the data is is troubling um, that, you know, we're some of the the most likely to commit suicide. In fact, my last Mm -hmm. funeral uh, as a, as a pastor, was you know nineteen year old young African American male who
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, who took his life. So, what the pandemic did was just really rip the uh, the scab off that, mm-hmm. there, that there are some some deeper issues, and some of those issues even our churches and religious organizations and leaders are participating in mm-hmm. um, because, like a lot of people in churches, and I am talking about in the Black church tradition they will cloak mental health issues with the language of faith.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: and so mm-hmm. there is yeah. just, which is kind of connected to the, to the second point I was going to make is that issues of mental health are still highly stigmatized in a lot of black churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and, and, and this really came to the fore when I was doing research on the issue of clergy suicide, because you would have some of these uh, very prominent charismatic dynamic highly successful uh african-american pastors who are struggling uh with with issues uh one pastor was struggling with manic depression mm. uh, and would not mm. take his uh, medication
4: mm.
3: be for fear of you go to the pharmacy to pick up your medication you bump into a member and members like hey pastor what are you doing here uh mm-hmm. what well, you know is, you know, is that for your blood pressure? Well, no, it's, it's, this is for depression. Well, I mean, you're, you're the pastor. Why are you taking (laughs) medication for depression? You're supposed to be able to pray, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and God handles all of that. And so instead of taking care of himself, he wasn't taking his medication and he ended up uh, taking his life. And so the, the stigma, these stigmas around mental health issues that, well, you know, people are crazy or, it's a sign of the demonic or a sign mm-hmm. of weak faith, mm-hmm. then forces a lot of people to use the language of faith to, to cloak <laughs> these mm-hmm. important issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's been, so I have been listening with a very keen ear, uh, mm-hmm. to, to sermons and to people of faith, how they're talking about their, their well being and, and how mm-hmm. they're doing, uh, and when I start hearing using some of these sort of pad answers, I'm blessed mm-hmm. and highly favored. Mm. I don't look like what I've been through. Okay, well, that sounds great. But mm-hmm. how are you really doing? Okay. <laughs> okay
4: mm-hmm.
3: I, I, I know that's like your, the standard answer your pastor tells you. But, you know, how are you doing? Uh, and mm-hmm. and 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 helping people to understand in the same way in which we go to physical doctors, you know, to, to take mm-hmm. care of our physical health, you know. That it's, it's just as important to do that with mental health professionals. And so I've been working with um, a major denomination to mm-hmm. encourage them at the denominational and congregational level to begin to institutionalize uh, systems, put, mm-hmm. getting mental health professionals on their church staffs,
4: mm-hmm. uh, doing mm-hmm. a lot
3: of trainings on mental health issues uh, at mm-hmm. sort of national and state meetings. <laughs> and so there there have been a couple denominations that have been uh, somewhat responsive to some of my research on clergy suicide. Mm-hmm. But but I have to honestly admit, I'm, I was very disappointed by the response from from a lot of churches and denominations. When you look at the literature, when you mm-hmm. look at the outcomes of what's happening when people are leaving theological institutions, they're not mm-hmm. prepared. They're not getting a lot of support. Mm-hmm. We're sending them out to almost like lambs to the slaughter and then just Mm, only worried about getting more into our schools so we can just keep, you know, sending them out there from Mm -hmm. a stewardship standpoint. I think it's very, very reckless. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it's been heartening to see a major denomination take my research seriously uh, and and to do some of this important work uh, around Mm -hmm. mental health issues. But we have a long way to go in the black community. One of my former students here at Louisville. At, at Louisville Press, even though I'm at Baptist Seminary now, uh, she wrote her master's thesis on mental health in the Black church. Mm-hmm. And she's continuing that work uh, in, with her d She has her own practice. And so to mm-hmm. see you know, some of my students taking some of this uh, and uh, and branching out and addressing some of these important issues uh, is very, very heartening.
1: Yeah. um, Actually, one of the sermons that I listened to recently, um, there was a guest preacher at a mega church and the title of her sermon was, how are you doing? And she was preaching about the, the black church tradition, not really addressing the issues um, of mental health. So it was good to see, and they're bringing in different um, scholars, but also like trained therapists. Um, One of my favorite, Dr. Anita says prayer is a weapon, but therapy is a tool. So, that's, that's, good. that's definitely yes. yeah. That's good. yeah, yeah. I check like some of her work. Yeah, she's doing <laughs> some good stuff around it.
2: So, speaking of tools connected to sustaining you, um, you know, for you personally, what are some of the spiritual disciplines or practices that help you through these kind of challenging spaces? Um, I mean, you are obviously a high-powered person with a whole lot of things on your plate. Um, what what restores you? Uh,
3: journaling. Uh, so I've I've been journaling ever since I started out in ministry. So I'm three decades uh, into journaling.
4: <laughs>
3: my dad told me something. Uh, you know, when I accepted my call to ministry and I was you know studying for my first my first sermon and you know I was sitting at the uh, dining room table. You know, had my little King James Bible out and <laughs> my, little, my little notes and everything. And he stopped and he says uh, he says anytime God lays something on your heart, he says you write it down. Hmm. And I was like, yes, sir. And he and he says, he says, no, he says, anytime God lays something on your heart, you write it down. He said, do you hear me? And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, You know, just to make sure he was like, make sure you hear me. And so because what ended up happening is my early years of ministry, you know, I'll be like one, two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, God would start speaking to me, you know, and (laughs) I would have to, you know, I would get up and just start, start writing and, and and journaling isn't always God speaking to me. Journaling is a lot of time of me just getting my thoughts down on paper, mm-hmm. of just processing. And, mm-hmm. and I'm just, I'm a processor, I think. And so I have an actual tub of, full of notebooks, <laughs> all my journals. Well, I'll just have ideas and thoughts and things that I'm thinking about. Uh, because the when Jesus you know Jesus calls us disciples in the Gospels, mm-hmm. and, and the Greek word for disciples, mathetes, it means a learner. And so a part of discipleship is you're always thinking and learning and God is 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 kind of walking you along this path. And, I mean, they're going to be things you can't fully understand at a certain increment or moment or season in your life. So journaling kind of helps to get those thoughts out on paper because I'm telling you, mm-hmm. the reason I have written so many books is because of really... The, the discipline of just writing things out thinking about them uh sometimes i'm i'm working on a sermon for years because mm-hmm. the thought came years ago and, and it has to germinate and you really got to kind of think yourself clear on some things and so uh not only does that is that good for my scholarship and my preaching it's just been good for me personally uh to so journaling has been has been good uh, i love uh exercising when I, one icebreaker I was going to do when you said tell us something interesting, you, most people don't know I was going to say that I, I'm a former jock, you know,
4: uh, a <laughs> former basketball star. Uh,
3: so being active is, is very, very important. And so I walk, yes, to exercise and to stay in shape, but walking is where I, I do a lot of uh, meditation.
4: Mm-hmm. You
3: know, it just really allows me, and I like to be outside in creation. You know, I mm-hmm. just, there's just something about the air, the sky, uh, uh, being surrounded by God's beauty that, that, that's really been good for me. Uh, so that's been, and when we were locked up in the house for the pandemic, I mean, I was walking sometimes two or three times a day. You know, the neighbors were like, there's Lewis again. You know, <laughs> I was like, well, what else is there to do? You know, I didn't get the COVID-15. I actually lost like 20 pounds because oh, uh, I was just walking. <laughs> Another discipline has been counting my blessings. Hmm. Uh, There's an old hymn in the black church that we often sing about. uh, Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has done. And it has been important because when there's so much negativity around, it is so easy to give into that and to not see that there's actually good. Mm -hmm. And counting your blessings, naming them one by one Mm -hmm. is really a way to ward off despair, hopelessness. Mm. Not that you don't acknowledge those things. They are there. But Mm -hmm. not acknowledging all the good, I think, leads to unhealthy thought patterns that then sometimes are connected to then unhealthy things we're doing, uh, not taking care of ourselves, you know. Helping others has been something that's been a really good discipline. I know that's kind of like a a canned answer. Even if it's something as small as sending a a donation to the Salvation Army, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: if there's something I'm not using or I don't need, that's like good, not like junk. Mm -hmm. But just finding a way to put good out in the universe. I know as Mm -hmm. Christian leaders, like, what does that mean? That sounds (laughs) kind of Eastern and Buddhist. Yes, it is. You know, uh, so of just finding a way to put good out in the universe, well, you know, the New Testament talks about sowing and reaping. So it's the same kind of principle of just finding ways to make sure you, we're helping others and then nurturing goodness is has been mm-hmm. another, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just just important discipline of just if there's something good of just putting water on it and and, 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 and nurturing what is good. It has been an invaluable resource to draw on as I grapple with, I mean, because in the work that I'm doing, I'm I'm grappling with major, major, major issues like systemic racism, issues that aren't going anywhere Mm -hmm. uh, that most of the time it looks like we're making no progress on. uh, Mm -hmm. And so finding ways to sustain yourself so that you can keep pushing in this work has been very, very important. Mm
2: -hmm. Something I really like about that. It feels to me like there's a connection between, that thankfulness, that counting your blessings, and how that nurtures goodness—that mm-hmm. those two come together almost like there's a flow between the two—and I can like, hear that in your description. So I just appreciate that.
3: Yeah, you're welcome. I I preached a sermon recently uh, in in a in a black church in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and you know I was I looked at the Genesis story and and noted how the writer told the story of you know, the creation story, the first one, where at each increment, God would say that it was good or, or it says, and God saw that it was good and kept repeating that. And God saw that it was good. Mm-hmm. And in the black community, you know, we need our own models of success because mm-hmm. bl- black excellence and black success can't be measured against people in the majority culture who have all of these systems of advantage and privilege. And, so, and like so many of my black sisters and brothers, they can't enjoy any of the success because sometimes they're comparing themselves <laughs> to other people mm. instead of realizing. Booker T. Washington said it like this. Success is not should be measured by the obstacles you have overcome. But if you think about where you start and where you are now, most African-Americans are. They're very, very successful people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what? Well, you know, we have low home ownership rates. But the fact that you start from the projects and you're in a nice apartment, celebrate that. That's something Mm -hmm. that's good. Uh, And and so we need some different models of success. And I'm telling you, there were like millennials in that church crying, Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. because we don't know how to applaud ourselves and and Mm -hmm. to see the good. And what we're doing as we are struggling against some of these hard, hard, hard issues. And so just seeing how even some of those disciplines, and, and then I told them about the counting your blessings. I mean, and it and it just kind of caught on. And folks started just looking at their life through a different lens and seeing a lot of good around them and saying, This is good. Yeah, that's good. This is good too. Uh, mm-hmm. and that being a resource to kind of you know push forward.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I just I want not I don't know I, I want to sit in that moment that was good Lewis, as a millennial that was really really good to just shifting your focus on what what is good when there's so much like you said so much pressure to meet so many other standards and and to measure up um so like that touched me
3: that's um, good to hear
1: we're going to move on to some of the fun questions for a little bit of an intermission. Um, okay. so w- what was the last book that you read?
3: Dr. King's book, where do we go from here? Chaos or community. I have been mm-hmm. developing, uh, courses on Dr. King for, I think four institutions in two States, uh, and, and then they will always ask me, will you teach the course? And uh, it's, it's, so it blows my mind if you read what Dr. King was saying about American 68, if we would to listened, we would be in a completely different place today. Hmm. So you should read, I mean, I, I know, I know oh. people are always reading the newest the- sort of academic book, but I mean, that, there's so much wisdom and insight in that book. It's <laughs> must read.
2: Hmm. If you were going to describe yourself... Three words. What would your three words be?
3: Dedicated, passionate, thoughtful. I'm I'm a go-getter. I mean, I'm very dedicated and passionate, (laughs) uh, and I I do try to be as thoughtful as I possibly can in everything I do.
1: Those are great words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you won an all-inclusive trip to anywhere in the world, where would you go?
3: Okay, the scholar's answer would be, (laughs) I want to go to Ghana, you know, and visit the slave castles and everything. Uh, but my personal answer is the coast of Italy, because I want to see the Mediterranean because <laughs> I, I love <laughs> yeah. the ocean. I love the ocean. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've seen the Mediterranean on movies and I got to go.
1: Yeah, I went to the Door of No Return in um, Goree Island in Senegal. You should go there, too. That was nice.
3: OK, nice. I've heard about that. Mm-hmm. I hope to go.
1: Yeah if you could speak one thing to God face to face, what would you ask or say?
3: <laughs> how, how can you love humanity? Uh, I mean, I'm just being honest, like in, in light of what we do with free will, uh, in, in the Pentecostal tradition, uh, we, we, we have this, uh, this religious myth, this belief in the, uh, the fall of, of angels that somehow the angels did something they messed up and, you know, uh, uh and God kicked them out of heaven. And then there are stories like in uh, Genesis where God gets so fed up with humanity that there's a flood. And, and you look at what we do today and I'm like, how, like, you know, should we be afraid? Uh, I, I, I really don't understand the, the best humans. I mean, the best humans I know are so thoroughly imperfect. It blows my mind. How God can love us and I, and how God mm-hmm. can love me, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we're just contradictions of of goodness and and badness and s- selflessness and self-interest. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure I wouldn't understand the answer, but, I, oh, I would ask
2: <laughs> <laughs> so if you could talk to one person uh dead or alive, who you've you've never spoken to, but you wish that you had, who would you choose?
3: Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's an easy answer for me. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. Jesus first. Uh, (laughs) Jesus. I mean, uh, I I would like to. When Dr. King argued the three great evils of American society are racism, poverty, and militarism. I mean, he was basically laying out for us what was going to be our three biggest problems. And I would just love to sit down with him. If he had a chance to see where we are today, I'm sure he would just be like, I tried to tell y'all, you know? So it'd be, it be would, it would, that would be cool to just be able to talk to him about that.
2: I'm picturing you at a table with Martin Luther King Jr. and Jesus and having that <laughs> conversation. Because that would be, I think that would be an oh amazing
4: conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. They, they both died because of the work that they were doing. And they would be looking at me and I'm kind of like... <laughs> 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 so yeah i mean when, when you really do this work people don't like you uh and mm-hmm. so they might be yeah. asking me some hard questions too mm. like everyone loves you lewis i'm like uh
1: <laughs> so we're gonna go on to the um next questions on theology the church and spirituality So I know you've mentioned earlier in the interview that you worked with um, the Pentecostal tradition, but also the Baptist tradition. You're at the Baptist seminary now, and you've been doing a lot of work training new leaders within the academy. What is one piece of advice you would give to leaders regarding ministry in the 21st century?
3: Well, I talk about this in my book, The Spirituality of, of Black Preaching. We really need balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, black churches need theologically trained leaders. I mean, it's, it's it's so critical. You cannot be in an information age, leading congregations, exercising leadership in your community, and you don't have theological training. Now, mm-hmm. uh, so I am an advocate for, for <coughs> theological education, uh, for education and, and for training for uh, for our leaders, because it's, it's only in the area of ministerial leadership is the only area in the black community where there's no expectation around education.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay.
3: We, we, black doctors, black attorneys, <laughs> black business people n- n- in no other area. There's a person say, well, I'm in business because you know, I'm God called me to be in business. You, you mm-hmm. need expertise. You need to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the black church, we, we we've got to push for that. But it, it must be balanced. We, we don't just need leaders with training. We need leaders with training who are spiritually grounded.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so some of my research in both the area of preaching and clergy suicide shows that if you're not spiritually grounded, if, if, if you're not giving attention to your formation, you're not going to last long in ministry. Mm-hmm. And so thinking of ministry as just a profession, it is mm-hmm. it is completely different. Yes, mm-hmm. you do need the training, just like folks in in business, in education, in law, in medicine. Mm-hmm. But doctors and attorneys, they're not they're not religious leaders. That's that's a mm-hmm. qualitatively different thing to do. And so we 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 have to have balance. And sometimes my I think my sisters and brothers in the mainline tradition, they sometimes minimize the importance of spirituality and because I came out of the sort of Pentecostal tradition that has just been something that is just, you know, at, at the core of my formation and just something that I'm just not going to surrender. Spirituality is a deep, deep uh resource mm-hmm. that if you have training with the work of the Holy Spirit, I tell my students this all the time, you're only given the Holy Spirit that much more to work with,
4: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. All these tools, these disciplines, these ideas, the Holy Spirit can just, oh my goodness, you know, use this mm-hmm. stuff in, in wonderful ways. So I'm like, I'm all for the training, <coughs> but I'm also making sure that they're that they're spiritually grounded, that things like prayer, uh uh scripture reading, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, that they don't surrender that. Uh, growing in your relationship uh, with God is something that's very, very important as you participate in ministry. And then I will also say that our leaders must serve our churches as well as the public square.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: That I think we have a, a, a dual responsibility that kind of just resonates that what, with what it means to be a black religious leader. Mm-hmm. Um you just can't sequester yourself inside the four walls of your church because there are so many issues that intersect with, with, with the lives of black people. And so to have this sort of myopic approach where you think it's not your responsibility to talk about social and political issues,
4: mm-hmm.
3: that you're not really being a good pastor. You're not really serving you know, and, and addressing those needs. And so I know it's kind of unrelated, But I always push back on these pastors and say, we're not supposed to talk about anything but the gospel. And I asked them, I said, where would that theology have gotten us uh, while we were slaves? And man, Mm -hmm. I've never heard a single one of them come back and say, I would have kept preaching it. That was was the only reason we're not enslaved is because people had a holistic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) socially engaged theology Mm -hmm. they addressed. The elephant in the room, which was slavery, not just keep themselves sequestered up in there talking about, well, when I get to heaven.
4: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
3: I, so I think we, we've, got to, we've got to do work in our congregations and communities. We, we've also got to do a lot of this important work in the public square, because to me, I think that's the most effective way to do evangelism today. This Romans mm-hmm. Road and all this, you're going to hell. That stuff is over. Yeah. If, if you want People to understand who God is and be attracted to that. Be out in God's world, taking a stand, doing the work. And I I don't think you'll be able to keep them away from it Mm -hmm. if they see it in its authenticity.
1: Yeah. And meeting the needs of the people.
3: Yes. Um, Mm
4: -hmm.
1: Yeah. So I know that uh, you get just different opportunities to
2: preach because you've been sharing some of those with us. Are there particular parts of scripture that you just feel like you love preaching. And if so, like why what, what makes those the parts that you get excited when you're preaching them?
3: Well, so I, I wrote my uh, I wrote my dissertation and an academic book on Paul's letter to Philemon and so that's that's been a book that's important to me. but Job is a book I constantly go back to. Hmm. Uh, in fact yeah. it's gonna be a future writing project. That I just think there needs to be an African American commentary written on mm-hmm. Job uh, and the book of Revelation uh,
4: mm-hmm. and, and
3: Luke. Th- those are three books I, I, I constantly keep going back to because of the ways in which they intersect with Black issues.
4: Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when you
3: look at Job and how all of this stuff that happened was undeserved, to me, that is nothing but a case study in the Black experience. Hmm. What did African people do to deserve to be enslaved in the Americas? Nothing. Now, do we get answers from the Holy One about why did you allow this? No, we don't get any answers about that. And the people who are doing this to us claim to be Christians. Okay. And so the the parallels with the Job story are striking. And, And the reason the apocalyptic writing of Revelation is just so inviting is because of this image of the beast and what colonialism and slavery has produced Mm. uh, in America and really all over the world. This image of this this grotesque thing with with eyes and heads and and horns. Now, you know, a lot of people like to do a lot of creative things when, when how they interpret that. But to me, that is such an apropos image of all of these ugly and grotesque systems that have been created because I'm I'm Mm -hmm. telling you, you get engaged, introduced to critical race theory, you find out just the nature of the racist beast and how almost impossible it is to unravel it in a way that's going to Mm -hmm. stop the masses of black people from suffering in this, in Mm -hmm. this country. I mean, it is literally a beast we are fighting with and it is such a helpful, I mean, it, it's a helpful image to me. Hmm. Because no matter how much progress we make, we're talking about a 400 year old problem in this country, mm-hmm. uh, and so we're going to be chipping away at this huge thing for quite some time. Uh, and then Luke's gospel is the mo- is just so radical. I know why America spiritualizes it because mm-hmm. Luke tells people if you've got privilege, you're going to hell, <laughs> and you know, and if you do, I think contextual lexical work on those Greek words for rich and poor, instead of just translating patokos and plousias as rich and poor, to me, contextually, it really is privileged and underprivileged. Mm-hmm. That's the real theological import. And if you are aligned with these problematic systems and empires, the, the tables get flipped in Luke. And I mean, mm-hmm. but in mm-hmm. the sort of evangelical world, You say those little magic words, Jesus, come in my heart, everything's fine. But in Luke's gospel, not the case. You keep stepping over Lazarus, and uh, you know, salvation in Luke is Zacchaeus, who divests himself of his privilege. Half of everything I have, I'm going to give. And he says, and if I've wronged, okay, that's reparations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And about 88% of Americans are opposed to reparations when an ABC (laughs) news poll says that, you know, almost 85 plus percent of Americans claim to be Christian. So they believe they can be Christian and not do what Zacchaeus did. And, and when Jesus sees salvation, he stands up and he says, yes, this day has salvation come to this house. Jesus didn't (laughs) tell him to do it. Jesus realized that's salvation. So Mm. when Zacchaeus becomes the paradigm for salvation in America, we will mm. do something with slavery and racism, uh, and it's going to look something like reparations.
4: Hmm.
2: Wow. I, I'll tell you, I teach a class on Job, and I teach a class on Johannine literature. So as soon as you got those things out, Lewis, I am bringing you into my
1: classroom, <laughs> <laughs> just so you know.
3: I would, I, would, <laughs> I, would, I would love to. I would love to. <laughs>
1: So what's one common misconception about the black church tradition you wish could be corrected for good?
3: Um, sometimes people wrongly assume that the black church is progressive. You know, mm. the black church is mostly conservative. <laughs> uh, so uh, a lot of times they think, the you know... Uh, you know, Frederick Douglass, Harry Tubman, and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, this is all coming out of the the Black church. And it's like, yes, but you do know that they had to do a lot of fighting within the church because of these forces that are always trying to say, we're not supposed to be doing this. Uh, We need to be focusing on spiritual issues. And so... uh, the black church is not as progressive as it should be there. There are progressive elements. Uh, And of course it's always the radical prophetic tradition that does all the hard work that ends up creating opportunities for all black people to enjoy uh, even the conservatives. Uh, And so, yeah, I, I grew up in a very, very conservative uh, tradition. And I mean, I have, and and I'm talking about this in my essay of of losing and deepening my faith. I, I have, I have moved a lot mm-hmm. on, on a lot of issues uh, and mm-hmm. it's just been big, be- just growth, you know, and and mm-hmm. understanding that God is bigger than your little church box and your little church world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm always, I'm on, I mean, I'm really on the, I mean, I'm on grassroots doing this kind of work in black churches and with black pastors mm-hmm. in denominations that, you know, are, are not for women in ministry uh, mm-hmm. in denominations where there's, rampant and widespread homophobia. Now, mm-hmm. some black scholars just completely leave these churches and, and mm-hmm. they go and they, they they work and they minister uh, in circles where they they feel more comfortable and affirmed. But to me, mm-hmm. if you're going to change, you've got to engage them mm-hmm. uh, and, and kind of nurture and bring them along because this is exactly what God did for me. And so mm-hmm. what? why should I then just abandon them <laughs> because they're not mm-hmm. where I am? You know, what would it mean for me? And and this is a part of me that continues to be a pastor Mm
4: -hmm. is to
3: sort of walk these leaders along a path to -hmm. help them to slowly just see maybe one thing here, one Mm -hmm. thing here uh, and to see what God does with that. And Mm -hmm. and I I found that just like Paul says, God, one plants, another person waters, Mm -hmm. God gives increase and, and, and makes it grow. Uh, and so I'm just trying to plant and, and I'm trying to water and bring us out of this sort of widespread, rampant conservatism that does not serve our own interests. It, it yeah. is actually self defeating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the purpose of Christian scholarship, um, not just asking reckless questions, but asking those tough questions and being able to journey alongside the people and knowing that it's a progression, yeah. um, that it, like you said, it won't happen overnight,
0: but it's going to wow. take <laughs> some
1: time and some deep, deep, deep digging <laughs> you know, and it's
3: hard because I'm not the most patient person. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one of my it is one of my real growing edges. Uh, yeah. You know, it's almost as if your your greatest strengths are always so, sometimes they're also your greatest weaknesses. Yeah. So because yes. I'm so driven, you know, so high speed, I, mm-hmm. I can push, push, push. But the world doesn't operate on my clock and my schedule, and so when it, it doesn't, I'm kind of like, ah. Oh! Uh, yeah. and so, being patient with people, even though mm-hmm. I do understand from a pastoral standpoint, you have to do that because mm-hmm. I mean, God was patient with me and continues to be um, mm-hmm. extending that patience when they're saying, you know, ridiculous things. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's a constant push. so
4: mm-hmm.
2: you know, something I really love about that is how, you know, while you're not, at this moment called to do that senior pastor role, that there's a way in which that experience as a pastor mm-hmm. means that you have this pastoral heart for other pastors, mm-hmm. like to be able to walk with them, care for them, say things in ways that they can hear even when you're pushing on those hard mm-hmm. points, those 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 places where they need to be pushed to be opened and to to think in new ways, as you described in sort of the goal of Christian scholarship. And yeah. so I love that combination of uh, asking hard questions that we as academics need to ask because we're trying to be prophetic in our movement, right? Yes. But also doing that in a way that is not not reckless, but caring. Like, I actually care. You actually mm-hmm. care. Um, and you can hear that in in your description. I love that
3: i'm I'm constantly attending to it because I mean it it is important, and you know I keep going back to it's it's the same way in which you know God has worked in my life, and so who am I not to extend that that same kind of grace Because I mean I was you know I'm talking about this in my essay, you know, just like Paul lamented that he was like, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the saints. You know, <laughs> you know, and I'm not meet to be called an apostle. There, there was a, a real realization that he his religious zeal caused him to do some very, very painful and harmful mm-hmm. things.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
3: and I've seen that, you know, in my life and in my ministry, sometimes very well-intentioned,
4: mm-hmm.
1: you know,
3: preaching and saying things that were harmful, that were problematic, that were straight up wrong. And God has mm-hmm. been gracious to me. And so mm-hmm. extending that to others. It's just an important part of my work.
2: Hmm. So helpful. So um, if you could just wake up tomorrow and you'd be a total expert on any other, let's just say any other discipline. It could be mm-hmm. theological. It could be otherwise. What would you choose? And and why that?
3: Media studies. Mm. I I would, I would not even worry about a theological discipline. Uh, my dream is is twofold. I would love to start what I call the, uh, the scholars channel. Uh, so all you have all these televangelists, they have their channels where they get to get on there uh, and 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 do a lot of this sort of shallow uh, uh, preaching and shallow ministry. What would it mean if if scholars if what was going on at AAR was an actual channel? uh you know where you've got scholars from all these different institutions and organizations sitting here in thoughtful ways talking about important issues in a way that people all over the world can engage which mm-hmm. would then parlay into the global religious news network uh mm-hmm. that I would like to have where people learn how to look at news issues through the end through the lens of religion because mm-hmm. re- religion complicates political issues in, in interesting ways. And so I would, I'm i all about the media piece because to me, it's the tool to get all of this out to the masses of people,
4: mm-hmm. uh, you know?
3: So the, the political piece, that is one way, but man, media is such an effective tool that the folks on the religious and the theological side, we are in the stone ages. I mean, we're in mm-hmm. the absolute stone ages when it comes to getting out in the public square and using all of these tools from mass media to get the message out.
4: Mm.
3: So if there's any big time donors out there, you want (laughs) to put your your donors, your (laughs) bucks behind a world-class idea, hit a brother up.
4: (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, I love that it's not an altar call. It's a funding call at the end of this podcast.
3: Hit a brother up, yes. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs)
1: Well, Lewis, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Mm -hmm. Thank you again for joining us.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgingtheology.com. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd love it if you'd share the episode with others or leave a rating in your podcast player. This episode was produced by me, Kevin Hill.